Hi, this is Paul. Just recently, uh, Bethel and Trip were on Sam's channel, and um, they they talked about a video that I had made. So I don't want to get too meta here, but I, I really like the topic, and I really like the questions. Um, I'm probably more on the winsome line than uh, Bethel and Trip are comfortable with, but the the way the Trip asked the question. Trip asked the question here. I thought was really good, a Kings North type um, approach or something like that. And so I just wanted to get your take on, like, you what what is the right way to evangelize to a Christian atheist, which I think we could call you know Murray and then Holland. The the evangelism question right now is a big one. Um, I. Right now, this whole Andy Stanley thing, I know some of you will um, some of you will know what I'm talking about. I was just I just this video for I, I'm not subscribed to Remnant Radio. I don't know who they are, but it seemed to me like sort of Christian YouTube. So you've got you've got one side of Christian YouTube that's um, you know freaking out about Andy Andy Stanley, and of course Andy Stanley. Uh, I believe Andy Stanley is the son of Charles Stanley, and Charles Stanley, for my grandmother used to watch Charles Stanley on TV. Um, the woman who used to be my bulletin secretary here at church prided herself on the fact she, she went on a number of cruises with Charles Stanley and has pictures with Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley was, was sort of the icon of evangelical preaching on Sunday morning. And now his son, Andy Stanley, is in hot water over a bunch of stuff that he said about this. And then another podcast, oh, um, the Holy Post podcast, which will have, um, yeah, so then they... Who love Jesus. Phil Visser, and I, I watched a little bit of this. I'm going to, I want to get into a, a more recent one from them. So what really caught my attention um, actually, when was it that she tweeted this? January, middle of January. So often, what I got the question in the YouTube question and answer today, or in the Discord question and answer today. Why um, am I ever going to do a series like John Verveke is doing, like after Socrates and Awaking from the Meaning Crisis, where I just sort of sit down and I have this whole program and I all lay it out? And maybe I'll do a series like that. I, I said that. If you want to see me do some of that stuff, just watch the Church Channel because I do that sort of work much more in the church channel than I do on this channel. On this channel, it's mostly me thinking off the top of my head and thinking out loud and inviting you to think with me and hearing from you and thinking together. So, so Bethel wrote this on Twitter, a genuine question. Are you asking other kinds of questions? But anyway, a genuine question. In all the discussion around Tim Keller, there's a lot of talk around the kind of person Keller reached as distinct from the kind of person someone like me, say, could reach. And this sort of dovetails into this conversation with Tripp and Sam. And yet, the more I think about it, the more I wonder if that's actually true. Now, and I like where she goes with this, because this, this line of thinking is something that I'm always thinking about, because I've got a Rando's conversation that the guy is on the fence about whether or not he'd like me to share it, there's no real reason why he shouldn't have me share it, really. It was a perfectly lovely Randos conversation. But this whole question about what does evangelism and Christian discipleship look like today? 
Now, there's a sense in which evangelism and Christian discipleship should have a constant, a consistency from Jesus until now. In fact, even before Jesus, back into the law and the prophets in Israel, there should be a consistency to that. But we have a navigational question. How does it stand? I've often talked about bounded set and centered set. A bounded set is sort of here are the stake markers. And so when when Andy Stanley says things about um, someone who's same-sex attracted in the church, who remains in the church, has more faith than you, most of you listening to me. I mean, a statement like that is kind of like, anyway. But I, I, liked where, I liked where she went with this. I liked the, the questioning she went with this. What does it mean to reach here? Yeah, exactly. Do you mean getting people to come back to church and listen to some sermons? Or getting people to decide church is cool and to join it for a while? Or getting people to a fully mature under, under, um, understanding? I just finished my rough draft for Sunday where Jesus basically says, um, you know, this is about living and by the time this video, <laughs> I'm not going to put anything in this video to get it blocked like my last Jordan Peterson video. Um, it's what you live. It's what you do. I remember Len Vanderzee, who some of you know from my channel, um, who was on the progressive side of the CRC fight that we're having. You know, He noted to me once, and, and he was exactly right, the entire New Testament is consistent on the fact that we are judged by what we do or don't do more than what we think because what we do is related to our relationship and so what we think is important obviously because what we think and what we do are deeply connected but um you, you can look at matthew 15 whatever you did to the least of these or you can look at um you know, you can look at what jesus says in the sermon on the mount lord lord did we not prophesy did we not cast out demons heal the sick raise the dead do all sorts of miracles. And Jesus basically says, depart from me, I never knew you, because, you know, what I want you to do is the will of my Father in heaven. That's what Christians should do. That's what the definition of a Christian is. And so these moral questions are not disconnected from this, but they're also not always easy. I, I just read a passage from 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 Shantung compound and you know if you think all of this Christians deconstructing is is all new stuff just you know read Langdon Gilkey this stuff has been going on for a very long time so and and he he was there in this in this internment camp this Japanese internment camp in China and he's watching the missionaries and the business people and he's he's paying very close attention to to some of the missionaries versus other of the missionaries. Now, of course, his evaluations are all based on his metric for evaluation. So I really like this, this tweet from Bethel because she's asking deeper questions. Because here's the thing, I could imagine a category of people for whom Keller would be better at getting what we might call partial retention. So the first definitions here, I'm less, con I'm less confident that they were our people for whom we are getting a better definition. I think I'm pretty. I think I'm pretty competent, versatile. Dare I say, even winsome communicator. <laughs> and I think that's that's something true of the winsome debate. Is that 
we're all more or less winsome depending on a lot of other factors, especially with whom we're discussing things. There are other metrics by which we can judge one another. Some people aren't even at that point, of course. The minute they realize my strong stance on a certain hot button social issue here, and you can name a bunch, I mean, Bethel's pretty conservative, um, they, have, they have a conniption, and that's because I'm willing to discuss what, um, what my stance is. And that, that really goes back to her conversation, because Tripp often would say, essentially, I don't think it helps them to be, un, basically to be unclear or to pull punches or to mince words. True. But all of this is always done, of course, in the context of a relationship. And I think temperament is deeply involved here. Does that mean when I engage with people individually, I'm rushing to have an argument with them so that they can be sure to get my edgiest views out of the way before I know them at all? No, that's a caricature, caricatured views of how people like me communicate. What it does mean is that if I get, direct, if I get a direct question, I'm going to give a direct answer. I'm not going to um, diagonalize. I'm not going to search for a way to present my view as avoidance of two equal and opposite errors. I'm going to say, that's what I think, clearly. Well, okay. There's a lot of ways to communicate a lot of things. And I've, I've seen her contextualize many of her answers on. And so th this, this goes for a while. But the, the whole Keller thing, just because, well, okay, Keller, Keller grew a large PCA church in Manhattan. And so what Gilkey does in his book is he notes that some of the missionaries, he was talking about the Protestant missionaries, it's very interesting in the book where the, he, the Catholics are, are, are different from the Protestants, and he notes that difference. And, and some of the monks, like there were some, there were some Trappist monks who, who, had, um, you know, who were practicing vows of, of, of silence, basically. And then when the Germans tried, or not the Germans, I'm sorry, when the Japanese um, tried to discipline them um, for smuggling, they put the uh, Trappist monks in solitary confinement and the rest of the camp just laughed their heads off because the rest of the camp understood that, no, this was their normal life. And so it's like, yeah, send me to solitary, please. But, but he, was noting that, he was noting the difference in the Protestants and you know some missionaries were just absolutely unhelpful and others were tremendously helpful. And he noticed that some people just couldn't get over their legalism and in the context of a prison camp where they were shut in together and everyone was miserable, some people made life better for everyone and other people didn't. And this was sort of a this was sort of a dead reckoning way of having a sense of saintliness and goodness. And of course, Eric Little, who of whom the movie Chariots of Fire was made, was in that camp. And I've I've read some of this stuff before. Um, he, he just talked about the legalistic people, and then he talked about the other people, and he said these people were able to meet cooperatively and warmly with others, with who, uh, with those who had no relation to Christianity at all. Whatever their code or personal morals might be, they knew that love and service of their neighbor and self-forgetfulness, even of one's own holiness, that's a good definition of humility, were what a true Christian life was supposed to be. Now again, Gilkey gave this up. 
Um, and it's important to, to note, but I think it probably always haunted him. Unlike the pious legalists, they attempted to apply no homemade plumb lines to their neighbors' lives, but sought only to help them whenever their help was really needed. About a year before the end of the war, it began to dawn on some of the parents, well, basically what happened was that they're all stuck in this camp and you have teenagers and, well, I'll just read it. I often think, should I read it or should I summarize it? About a, about a year before the end of the war, it became to dawn on the parents that something explosive was going on among their teenagers. As always, rumors filled the air, but then investigation of the, of the discipline committee uncovered a lush situation. In the unused basement of one of the buildings and in a small dugout air raid shelter in another part of the compound, youngsters were gathering regularly for what could only be termed sexual orgies. In the room, room of Mrs. Johnson, the poor Eurasian with three children, they were meeting early in the evening for intercourse on the small room's three beds while Mrs. Johnson kept watch at the door. Her own children, aged 11 to 14, apparently taking leading roles in the affair. This is horrific. When the parents had said, irritably, run along outside and find something to do, the kids had done exactly that. The ages of those involved staggered the worldly camp the most. When the facts were brought to light, parents who had taken no interest in their children, what their children were doing, so long as they were out of the room, were horrified and furious. Parents held a mass meeting to deal with the crisis. And there's a lot of finger pointing, and the parents just evidently were remarkably useless. Basically, it was some of the missionary teachers that knew what to do. They met together, devised a program of evening entertainment, dancing, square dancing, games, science study, language lessons, and so on, ad infinitum. To the anxious parents, none of this sounded nearly exciting enough to draw the minds of their kids away from the newfound diversions. Sex versus kind of a, a, a lousy youth group. Fortunately, the teachers knew young people better and so kept persistent at it. The, te the, young, the, the missionaries had no kids themselves of that age and so kept at it, organizing the game room, assigning evenings among themselves Monday through Friday for supervision. There was chess and checkers tournaments, craft shows, dart contests, one-act plays, and homemade puppet shows, everything that ingenuity could devise. Five or six good souls kept the operation going, spending two long evenings each week supervising the kids. The program worked, and from then on, despite regular and careful investigation, no more signs of the former troubles were discovered. As many parents looking up in a sad, worried anger from their bridge games agreed, it was about time they did something. They did something. You're their parents. So this would make my wife, should make my, this would give my wife fits. Um, the man who more than anyone brought about the solution to the teenage problem was Eric Ridley. That's Eric Liddell, or Little. It was rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Often in an evening on that last year, I headed for some pleasant rendezvous with my girlfriend. He was a young man. He wasn't a teenager, he was a young man. Would pass the game room and peer in to see what the missionaries had cooked up for the teenagers. As often as not, Eric Ridley would be bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, <laughs> square dance, absorbed, warm, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the minds and imaginations of those pent-up youth. 
If anyone could have done it, he could. A track man, he had won the 440 in the Olympics for England in the 20s and then had come to China as a missionary. He was a child of Chinese missionaries. In a camp, he was in his mid-40s, lithe and springy of step and above all, overflowing with good humor and love of life. He was aided by others, to be sure, but it was Eric's enthusiasm and charm that carried the day with the whole effort. Shortly before the camp ended, he was stricken suddenly with a brain tumor and died the same day. The entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. What does a Christian look like? We want our systems and our programs to yield them. What's interesting about our world is we do a lot of systematizing and programming about things that we struggle to serve, struggle to um, to actually sort of capture. On Twitter, Chris Williamson pointed me to this tweet or to this blog post. The following are 45 correlates that I've collected of things called sacred. I invite any of you to offer a theory of the sacred that explains as many of these as you can, as simply as you can. Now, this is very Jordan Peterson-esque. I could imagine Jordan Peterson sitting, opening up his bo book and saying, God is or divinity is or, or something of that nature. Sacred things are highly or lowly valued. We politely revere, respect, and prioritize them. We revere sacred beliefs as well as acts. We feel dirty when thoughts go near illicit ones. Sacred is big, powerful, extraordinary. We fear, submit, and see it as larger than ourselves. Sacred things matter for our health, luck, and other outcomes we care about. We want the sacred for itself rather than as a means to get other things. Sacred things are either more homogeneous or more unique whichever is better. This is just, I mean, these are, these are great. And he is right. And this is exactly the, the struggle we have in saying, well, here's an evangelistic program to yield this kind of people. We can't even describe. We see it. We can recognize it. We know it. We, we can orient to it. You can put words on it. You know, Christians will definitely say, well, that's Jesus. But to, to sort of wield it, get it in our hands, it defies us. And, and again, if you think about it for a moment, of course it defies us. It's, it's, it's larger than we are. We are the small. It is the great. We can't wield it. We can only receive it. We get emotionally attached to the sacred. Our stance towards it is part of our identity. Sacred induces strong emotions, awe, joy, serenity, devotion, repulsion, fear. We desire to connect with the sacred and to be more associated with it. To approach the sacred, we use self-control to purify ourselves, sacrifice, and commit. We enjoy sacrificing for the sacred, to purify and respect sacred, including via odd beliefs. Sacred brings us comfort and consolation in hard times. Losing it can feel devastating. We affirm and learn sacred via mythic stories and accounts of how we and it fit into the universe. We have rules regarding how to approach sacred stuff, in part to protect us. The sacred isn't for use by commoners or for common purposes. Sacred views about the sacred bind, define, and distinguish social groups. Shared rituals and festivals bind and emotionally charge us and help us to see sacred. 
We want associations to share our views of and attachments to the sacred. We get offended when others seem to deny our sacred views and, rigor and, and respond vigorously. We feel more equal to each other um, regarding sacred things. Status matters even less. Either everyone, for example, love, or a few, example, medicine, are entitled to opinions on the sacred. Charismatic leaders motivate, get acceptance, in part via appeals, connections to the sacred. Experts of the sacred are more prestigious and trusted, get more job security. Sacrificing for the sacred is seen as pro-social. Sacred things are sharply set apart and distinguished from the ordinary and mundane. Sacred things do not fit well with our animal nature, such as self-interest and competition. We dislike mixing sacred and mundane things together. We dislike money prices of sacred and trades that get more mundane via less sacred. We dislike for-profit for organizations of the sacred relative to non-profits or government agencies. Sacred things feel less limited by physics and can seem to have unlimited possibilities. Sacred things really matter. Uh, fills deepest needs, completes us, makes us pure, makes us all one. Sacred things last longer and decay or break less, sometimes eternal and unchanging. Sacred things are pure and cleaner and closer to the ultimate core of existence. Sacred things have fewer random coincidences. These patterns mean something. Now I'm talking about sacred things and this is, you know, in obviously an abstraction, but all of us know that concrete examples, instantiations, saints like Eric Little, these things are way more powerful than the abstractions. We kind of look at the abstractions and say, yeah, 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 but it doesn't have the power of the real sacred when we are in its presence. And again, I just said presence because we have a sense that the sacred is alive. We have to approach the sacred with the spirit of finesse. Sacred things have fewer value conflicts with each other. You can have them all at once. It's harder to judge the relative value of sacred things compared to mundane things. We understand the sacred poorly using cognitive rational analysis or numbers. We understand the sacred better using intuition, flow, and creativity. How sacred things seem is less misleading. You can more trust their appearance. The sacred, is, um, the sacred is mysterious, unlike and even inconsistent. Who are we to question it? Sacred makes us stand outside ourselves, feel ecstasy, transcendent, um, transcendence, different reality. We do not make or control the sacred. It makes and transforms us. Stuff, objects, dates, people, words, sounds that touch the sacred get sacred itself. We connect to sacred themes better via contact with sacred stuff. Over time, things we often connect to tend to become sacred via nostalgia. I want to attempt to describe here. Yeah. Not going to read that right now, but that's a heck of a list. I'll put it down below. It's worth thinking about. Now, um, speaking of the Holy Post, um, a viewer sent me, let me put it on the Vanderclips channel, I can get it there. We'll let Bethel and Tripp talk about these two the way they want to, but um, a viewer sent me this. 
article that you wrote this past month for The Dispatch. Mm-hmm. It's titled, The Most Important Thing You Read Today. And mm-hmm. the subtitle, it's about diversity training and it's not by me, which is <laughs> great. Like, open this, but don't read everything I'm about to say because I want you to click into something further. Yes. Um, I, this is great. This was super interesting. You you cite a piece by Jesse Sengel. Is that how you say his Sengel, name? Sengel, yes. Uh-huh. And he's written about research that's uncovered the ineffectiveness of diversity training. Mm-hmm. And this launches you into a wider conversation around what we think really matters and happens. But let's begin with with uh, Jesse Singel's piece on diversity training. What did he uncover that was so interesting? Yeah, what he uncovered is that diversity training doesn't really work. And to the effect, to the extent that it has an effect on people, it's often negative. There's often a, a backlash attached to it. And And this is something that's been kind of a a dirty little secret for a while now is that um, this is that diversity training doesn't really do a lot. Well, um, but before before we get into it not doing a lot, what do people hope it does? What is the goal of the? I mean, we've probably all been a part of these in some form or another. And and this is and this is exactly. Whoops, let me get my act together here. And this is part of the point. Because even okay, diversity training. Okay, what what's that supposed to yield, and and who is it supposed to yield it with? There, there's a sense at which, just as with the sacred, we're we're not this this is not within our hands yet, it is, and we've got a degree of responsibility towards it. So it, it's all this, it's all this space where. On one hand, if you listen to us, and if and you look at Christ's exhortation in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, here, do this. This is what it means for us to be human. But yeah. what's stated as being the, the perceived goal or outcome of diversity training? Well, that's, you've raised the great question. <laughs> okay. Because I, I got pushback from some folks saying, well, it depends on what you're wanting out of it. So if you're wanting something very, very modest out of it, in other words, you say, well, this is something that's sort of a signaling mechanism to just sort of say, we take diversity seriously or... Which I I find this little list absolutely hilarious. This is a CYA measure for litigation that is saying, look, we have fully trained our employees in anti-harassment... Uh, we, we have fully trained our employees, but we completely know that none of this will actually secure or guarantee the outcome we need <laughs> or are purporting to offer. I mean, but yeah, I'm not just pointing at them. Just keep watching. Concepts and DEI. Well, then if, if your goals are very, very modest or perhaps superficial, then diversity training can quote, work. Right, but covering have, your rear end in a lawsuit situation, basically. <laughs> covering, covering your rear end, box checking, right. or maybe something less tangible but still meaningful where you're saying, look, we have a diverse workforce and we're signaling to our diverse workforce that we take diversity seriously, that there's a signaling mechanism. So if, you're, if your objectives are super, super modest and in, that, in those circumstances often unmeasurable, um, then okay, I, I can get the argument that it works. But if your objectives are diversity training as a means of fundamentally changing attitudes, 
In other words, changing the way people view issues of race and gender and sexuality and things like that. Um, or if your view is that diversity training is sort of a way, a mechanism for, uh, an indispensable mechanism, for example, in say, uh, increasing diversity, uh, that it is a necessary step for increasing diversity. Again, the, the evidence for that is really lacking. So it doesn't appear to really change corporate culture. It doesn't appear to really change individual hearts and minds. And it doesn't appear to really be that instrumental in changing the composition of workforces you know, as, as a tool in the toolbox. In other words, it doesn't work. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't achieve what it purports to achieve of sort of diversifying workforces. And so basically uh, all of the things that you would want in a, in a program that would be truly impactful, it doesn't accomplish. Now, I'm not saying not, I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions to this rule, that there might be individual trainers or individual trainings that might be better than others. And, and single found that if training is voluntary, in other words, participants are really willingly coming into the training. That's very Petersonian. I played this for the video that got blocked, so I, this was just too good to not use. Training, in other words, are predisposed to want to receive the message. It might be more impactful, but this sort of mandatory diversity training world just isn't impactful. So my interest in this piece, and I think it's your interest as well, is not so much in diversity training itself. Right. It's, it's in the assumption we carry widely that... Yes we can form people into the views and beliefs that we think are best with a programmatic approach. Yes. And we do that in our corporations, in our... And, and it's not just a programmatic approach. It's, it's with just about everything we do. <laughs> I mean, we, it'd be nice to just say, oh, programs don't work. But in a sense, nothing works. But yet at the same time, it is not true that nothing works. Well, let's, let's play a little bit more and I'll talk a little more schools and universities, in our churches and ministries. Mm -hmm. We think if we just employ the right content in the right program, people will come out the other side like some kind of uh, spiritually formative, uh, mechanized industrial factory. They'll come out the other end as this person we want them to be. So the article you cite shows, well, that's not exactly what's happening with diversity training in corporate settings. You cite the fear that a lot of Christian parents have about sending their children to secular to universities and colleges, that it's going to deprogram them from the faith and make them into these secular robots. And I'm not near the skeptic of this that I am for the church's ability to program thing, because it, it certainly seems just anecdotal evidence that it happens a lot. But this is where you get into this weird world of the difference between statistics and the sample of one. I mean, you can, you can, in some cases, reliably predict what a certain number of people or a certain percentage of people will do, but it can be remarkably difficult to predict what one person will do. And I, you know, this is another one of these thoughts that just continually haunts me. Um, there, there's, there's some, there, there's some looseness and vagueness in our approach to the world, view statistics and science in this way. That's, that's, that's simply inadequate. The data says that's not true either, that kids who go to these universities with faith actually hold on to faith at higher rates than one might right. expect. So 
What's your big takeaway then from? Well, well, I think actually you can easily make a case, and I've seen descriptions of that, that sometimes kids go to something like Christian college and deconstruct, but if they go to university and are faced with direct opposition, they um, they do so less. It, it's ironic that um, you know my whole argument about what's happening in the CRC, a lot of the you, you would imagine that it is the churches in the blue states that would, for the most part, be the ones that would be telling Grand Rapids to evolve on the sexuality question. No, for the most part, it's the churches in the red states that are doing that more in some ways. I mean, it's, it's just enormously complex. This phenomenon that <laughs> it, none of these things seem to be as either effective or as dangerous as we make them out to be. Yeah. So there are multiple pretty important takeaways here. And another one I use was fertility. So we have this huge issue of declining fertility, not just yeah. in the U.S., but worldwide in advanced um, nations, advanced economies. And everyone says, here's this program that'll work and this program. Yeah, and Japan this program has and this tried program. all kinds of really crazy stuff. All kinds of been stuff. I mean, paying people, to, you know, bonuses when they have children to cradle to grave health care to extended leave. I mean, we've so many. And sometimes you might see a marginal bump here or there, but fundamental change doesn't happen. And so there's so many, so many interesting takeaways from this. One is we often fight intensely and this was sort of how I led this. We often fight really intensely over things that truth be told, aren't that consequential. And so the diversity training example, a lot of more progressive people hope that it transforms hearts and minds. And a lot of conservatives. So, you know, are David French, Tim Keller, and Andy Stanley intensely consequential? I don't know. Especially when you're getting to sort of more critical race theory informed versions of diversity training fear that it changes hearts and minds when it doesn't fulfill the hopes nor does it you know enact the fears it's just kind of there and similarly with college there's this sort of incredible emphasis uh and you see this in in uh in conservative christian spaces where what do you say to parents who are about to send their kids to college right and i've started I've started and get, I get this question all the time and I've started with a two word response, fear not, <laughs> fear not. And one of the reasons why they should fear not is it actually turns out that, and it's been the case for generations that college educated people are more religious than non-college educated. Right. And, and so it is not this factory of secularization and conversely to folks in the sort of the activist part of academia, they really believe that they are engines of fundamental change in the students and sometimes act accordingly inflaming culture wars in their own right when they're not, when they're not. And, and so it really does, I think in, in one sense, it, it, is, it is both empowering and disempowering in different ways. So it, it's disempowering in the, sen in the sense that, look guys, there's no five point plan you know, here for revitalizing the church or it's, it's, there's no five point plan for racial reconciliation and harmony. It's not that policy doesn't matter at all. 
It's just that it's not got the weight, the change, the change. Uh, it's not the change agent that you think it is. And then what's empowering is what does change us? What does build us, construct us, and mold us? Turns out, you know, the the good old fashioned close friends, family, intimate, you know, intimate relationship dynamics right. still really, really, really matters. So when I read this piece, I was, I, I immediately put my ministry hat back on, my, my yeah, pastor yeah. hat, because when I was in pastoral ministry and even years following that, when I was at Christianity Today and reporting on a lot of ministries, this mindset is everywhere in the ministry world. Mm. Everyone's looking for the off the shelf solution to make disciples or to reach non-believers or to grow the church or to transform young people's lives. And everyone's trying to sell that as the prepackaged, here's what you need to do. Um, thinking back to the late 2010s, early teens, Willow Creek did a big, big study that they branded and published under the name Reveal. I don't know if you ever encountered mm. this. No, no. But uh. they started, they hired some outside firm, spent a lot of money to first investigate their own congregation. And then they expanded this to 500 and I think ultimately around 5,000 congregations around the U.S. And the simple task was what has been proven to help people love God and love their neighbor more? What, which of our programs, what activities that we're doing as a church are really moving the needle on what they diagnose to be the, the core of the faith? And what they came back with was really fascinating. Essentially, it boiled down to four things. Okay. One was regular engagement with the Bible, reading the Bible regularly. Two was prayer. Mm -hmm. Three was a meaningful relationship with a mentor, a, a spiritual mother or father in your life. Mm -hmm. And four, some outlet of service toward others. Not not necessarily in the church, but just a place where right. you are contributing and serving others. Those four things. And <laughs> Willow put out this video about this research and this the, the, the jaw-dropping reality of these findings where they realized everything we're doing is, you know, we build these $80 million buildings and these huge elaborate programs, and yet it's these four simple activities. And the, the executive pastor at the time, Greg Hawkins, had this white board paper and he, he like tore off the sheet and said we're starting with a brand new sheet of, we're going to rejigger everything from the ground up around these four things and and eventually they did this whole conference on it they rolled out i reported on it numerous times at ct and then after about two years it all just kind of disappeared like you didn't <laughs> you didn't hear anything about reveal for a while and I, I went to some of my sources my back-end sources like what happened to reveal where'd it go and what I was told was, well, the problem with Reveal was you can't really sell anything. Mm. You, you can't sell a program. You can't sell. There's no commercial product based on those four things. You don't need an $80 million building to do those four things. Yeah. And so, in, in fact, you can do them in a Japanese internment camp. You can do them at any little church anywhere there they are and you know what's been interesting in the in the in the christian atheist space is that well you know listen to tom holland talk about the bible well, that's great prayer i don't know where's tom at with prayer i don't know Jordan, Jordan in prayer. Think about him talking to Sam Harris about sitting at the edge of his bed. 
Jordan Peterson as Constantine is is trying to establish a new world order based on the wisdom that he finds in the Bible. And he's not hiding it. <laughs> Just the most hilarious thing. It's not someone that, you know, points the trip. But but it's, you know, in, in some ways Christians get dismissed because if I as a Christian pastor lead in with the Bible, everybody's like, pastor, Bible. Jordan Peterson leads in the Bible. They're like, what? I mean, that's that, that's that's been the burning bush aspect of Jordan Peterson. So, um, and then, you know, Eric Little spending time with these kids in the internment camp, playing chess and checkers, putting up a little sketch, doing something, you know, basically giving, giving the last of his life, which nobody knew, not even him, giving the last of his life to those kids so that they could do something better than just tie themselves up in knots, you know, playing with sex in some dirty air raid shelter. And, um, and then, you know, that, you know, he, they're getting a twofer there and he's doing it for other people's children. We're not going to analyze this stuff and put the sacred under, we're not going to bottle the sacred and dispense it. And you can see that just with this list of um, this this list of sacred things that this the sacred the sacred is the sacred. We can't bottle it. We can't re reliably deliver it except in the way in which it is reliably delivered to us. And you know again. Me as a Calvinist, it's God who does this work. It's God who brings the harvest. It's God who, and, and he does it in, in surprising ways that, that we would never imagine. And, and this, this gets into the, the whole question of, I'm sure that there were people in that camp whose life was changed. Landon Gilkey, he writes this. It's a powerful book. I really enjoy that book. It's a it's a great book to read, but he doesn't he doesn't leave there a Christian. So I would, you know, even even at the risk of saying, well, those four things are the thing. Uh, you can you can do those in a way to botch it too, trust me. But How can we how can how can we deliver a great gift given to us to others? Well, first don't get in the way. And what does that mean? And you know, fair enough to to trip and and Bethel there. You can get in the way by being too winsome, and you can get in the way by being too dogmatic. You can do it both ways. I'm absolutely sure of it. And I'm sure I tend to I tend to fail on one side than the other. And it's also the case that sometimes people need sort of the direct, stark, a bucket full of ice water truth in their face. Other people doesn't work. And and part of what's interesting about the 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 Christian atheists is that they on one hand want it strange, but on the other hand want the slope to be gentle. 
So, and you just can't get both ways. And, and that's why, that's why God is, God comes after us in the way that he chooses and the way that he captures us and, or he doesn't. And the sacred doesn't come near. And we stay in our banal commonality. So, anyway, this is probably a disaster of a video, but um, here it is. Leave a comment.